Hello everyone, my name is Jack Burke. Today we have Anne Cleary kindly joining us on the podcast. Aiding was set up in 1982 and in 1997 Anne Cleary became its CEO. She's been working in the NGO sector for around 30 years. This Irish charity works to educate, enable and empower individuals, families and communities in Kenya, Uganda and Ghana to become the leaders of their own development. In 2019 alone, Aidling provided 22 schools with improved water and sanitation facilities, benefiting roughly 6,500 students, provide nearly 11,000 children with a daily lunch. The NGO is particularly committed to making the world a safer and fairer place for women and girls, tackling harmful cultural practices such as child marriage and female genital mutilation, which often signals the end of a girl's education, agency and choice about her future. Aidling also runs immersive programmes for second-level students to travel to parts of Africa to live and attend school offering life-changing experiences and lessons. So welcome, Anne. Thank you very much. And also joining us today is Murti Masumi. Um, Murti Masumi is the Executive Director of the Girl Child Network. The Girl Child Network is an independent membership organisation that is non-political, non-religious and non-profit, and is driven by the desire to promote the quality of life for, for girls, boys, youth, women, family and communities as a whole. They work to tackle issues across Africa, such as child marriage, poverty, child labour, female genital mutilation, gender-based violence, and lack of information on sexual reproductive health and rights. The NGO was founded in 1995 to tackle these issues, and has been growing over the last 26 years to bring about change and development in Africa. Uh, Mercy, it's fantastic to have you with us today. Thank you. Thank you. So what first inspired you to get into charity work? Uh, I I don't really have a nice simple answer for that, Jack, but to tell you that I suppose when I was in school uh, and every time somebody asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I always said that I wanted to be a nurse and I wanted to go to Africa. And mm. and I followed that dream. And I when I finished school, I went to uh, I went nursing. And as soon as I qualified, um, I uh, yeah, I packed my bags and I went uh, as a volunteer with Goal uh, initially, uh, and I worked in Ethiopia uh, for two years and in some some major emergencies. And then, as you already have said, and then joined Aid Link in 1997. Uh, so, yeah, it it uh, I don't know where it came from. My mother does not like airplanes and does not like traveling. But for me, it has been with me since I was a small child. Okay. And Mercy, what about yourself in that regard? What made you first get into it? I think for me, uh, it's really the experiences I had growing up in Africa, growing up in a family with boys favored, loved more than the girls, and also growing up in a community where you could see straight away that boys and more privileges than the girls and Looking at the whole school environment, even when I went to school, just to know that boys were more preferred children. And I was wondering, what is it that girls did that made makes them be so disadvantaged? And from my early age, because of the negative challenges that I faced as a growing up girl, I purposed, I work myself. The rest of my life, I was sacrificing to working to understand why this discrimination? By that time, I didn't really know it was discrimination, but it's more of favoring the favoritism, you know, 
favoring the boys more than the girls, mm. yet giving them opportunities. And I thought I would make sure that I also work with girls and women to make sure that they also understand they can do what boys can do, they can do what men can do. By that time before Beijing, I didn't know that we can also add the the girls can do better. But for me, it was just making sure that giving the girls, giving the women a voice just to be growing up just with like the boy child. Thank you. Mm. Yes. So, I just want to ask just mercy just on that. So in your experience growing up, you know, obviously as a little girl in Kenya. So, you know, would you, would you, did you consciously sort of feel that you were you know, treated differently to the boys in that regard. Yes, I was. I was, and every girl was at my time and even now. For example, we woke up with my brothers and every girl in the community wakes up. You can't go to school. First of all, you've got to go and look for water. You go to the river to fetch water with a big bow on your head, a jerry can on your mm. head. You bring it home. Your brothers have waken up and then you bring the water. Then you make breakfast for them. You've there is firewood that you collected yesterday. You make breakfast for everybody. Before you go to school, you must wash those utensils because your mother left very early to go to the gardens, to weed, to farm. So you are left to be the only one who has to do. If you are only one sister, then you did everything. If you are two sisters, you mm. shared. Your brothers literally did nothing. And not only my brothers, but all the boys from within the community. You go to school. Boys were girls were allocated the work of sweeping because classrooms were dusty, they were soil. Girls were always sweeping the classrooms and the compound. Remember, you sweep every day. Boys were allocated the work of cutting grass. How often does grass grow? Only when it rains. Yeah, that's when they would come with mm. the pangas and slash the glass. But the girls were ever, ever busy in school. You go home in the evening, you Put your bag down. You have homework, but you put your bag down as a girl. Go to the bushes, the forest to look for firewood. You come and you've got to prepare dinner because your mother is still doing her chores outside the house. So you do, you've got to prepare what to be cooked. If your mother comes, then you help each other look for firewood, make the meal. And then after the meal, your mother may be kind enough for her to take over your roles. And then your brothers are doing nothing but playing football. You know, playing football outside, mm -hmm. not inside. You, you are busy inside. And after you've done all this work, your brothers have finished their work. By the time you finish your work, it's too late to do your homework. So most of the times, girls would always be punished in school because we never did our homework. Why? Because when we went home, we had duties that we had to do when our brothers were doing their homework. So I, then there was no electricity. And even today, most of the families mm. don't have electricity. So you can't do the homework because it's already dark. So you go to school, you've not done your homework. First thing is punishment. You know, that I beating, beating mm. of children was very, it's the way, it was the normal way of discipline. So you could see it. You never needed to be told. You could see the discrimination of alternatively favoring the boy child to study. More yeah. than the girl. And when it came to meals, you prepare the meal, but because most often than not, meals were not enough, that your brothers were given more portion of the meal, girls were given little because boys were supposed to be strong. Girls are not supposed to be very mm. strong. So you saw the discrimination and all those factors as you grew. And you got socialized into it. But then it took you some time to think, why is this happening to the girls? And that's what came to me. 
what why are we going mm. all through this and it is in my since my growing up i knew what i wanted to do i wanted to grow up to understand why girls are treated differently with women from boys and men and i just found it in the ngo anyway that is a fantastic sort of back story to it i think that that sounds really does sound very awful that treatment you know that you're telling me about you know completely completely unfair really but um, that's a noble cause, I guess, to have found that over. So, for Anne, um, obviously, you said that you, when you were growing up, you wanted to be a nurse and then to go and travel to Africa to work as a nurse there. Um, I suppose, where did the ambition to want to go to Africa and to charity work as a nurse or otherwise now, where did that ambition come from, do you think? Or was it a conscious decision or do you think it's more of a personality thing? Uh, I, I think for me, it was a very conscious decision. Uh, I think that although my my life growing up was very different to Mercy's, um, I, you know, I grew up in Fox Rock around the corner from the college. Um, I, I watched you lads go in and out of in and out of the gates in those Navy jumpers. Um, but I did at a very young age recognize that the world was not fair. I got at some stage in my life, I realized that. There was this extraordinary privilege about having been born in Ireland, about being white, uh, about being a white female, um, that um, it gave me freedom. It gave me agency. It gave me choice that that many people didn't have. Um, You know, I think that uh, I, I never considered myself wealthy growing up, but I also never worried. I never worried you know, would I be allowed to go to secondary school? I never worried about whether or not I would have a school uniform. I never worried about, um, you know, whether I would have books or pens. And I knew that other people did. Um, I think that, you know, Mercy's description of growing up and describing that very uh, extraordinary difference between Mm. the opportunities for boys and girls. I think we also felt some of them here when I was a a girl in Ireland. You know, I went to a co-ed school. I went to Cavantilly Community School. Um, but, you know, sometimes our career guidance teacher would say that the boys will be businessmen and engineers and, I don't know, they could go to the moon. And the girls were going to be secretaries and nurses and teachers. Mm. And at some level, there was an assumption that we would get married to a nice man uh, and, have, and have a family and that we you know, and that we would carry on in that way. And and somewhere in my teens, I thought, well, you know, but, you know, if I want, why can't I go to the moon or why can't I, I go yeah. to Africa? So it was a conscious decision to, at least for a period, I think I, I never thought it would be a lifetime decision. I thought for me, it would be for a period of my time, of my life in my early 20s, uh, that I would, I, I think I really hoped that I would make a contribution to making a better world. And that mm. I thought based on, I suppose, some of the perceptions I had about Africa, that maybe I could have the biggest influence there. And that also I thought by nursing that I had something that I, I had something to offer that if I could bring some of my nursing skills and my nursing experience to bear, um, that that would be something positive. What I didn't know was that I think 
that having travelled to to Africa to Ethiopia first in the early uh, in the early nineties, um, that it wasn't simply my nursing skills. I think some of what Mercy talked about, you know, sometimes people would say to me, and that first that first time in Africa, they would say to me, "Oh my God, your family let you come here on your own. You know, you're a girl, you're a young woman." Mm. You know, if your father loved you, he wouldn't let you come to this strange place on your own. And I would say, but it's because my father loves me that he lets me make this choice. And I think that then it was not simply about the skills that I had as a nurse, but then it was also about my personality and about my ambition Mm. for change. I think I learned about a, a core strength um, that I didn't know I have. I'm not saying I didn't, you know, get homesick or, you know, and sometimes mm. cry myself to sleep a little bit in the early days. But also I understood then about my own resilience and my own capacity to adapt, uh, to learn from the people I was with, uh, and also to start fighting for change, that my mm. role in Ethiopia in those days was not simply to vaccinate children uh, or to treat their sicknesses, but to look at um, to look at the world in which children were growing up in, and what was fair and what mm. was not fair, and how could someone like me contribute to a fairer world? And that became, I think, a very uh, driving force that that I think has probably driven me ever since. Every time I have had a new niece or nephew, and I have a total of nine now. I have thought, oh, my God, I know they're going to school. I know they'll go to secondary school. I know they'll get a chance to go to university. I know they will never worry about shoes. I know that they will probably go on fancy holidays, that they will, you know, McDonald's will not be something that you see on a on an American TV show, but it will be something real. Um, but also, they will have a say. They will have a say. I watch them. I look at them. They will have a say in their own lives. And I have met many, many children in Africa that do not have that same agency, that same. And I also, I can't look at them and say for sure that they are going to get a chance to go even to primary school or to secondary school or university or fulfill their own ambition. And that's ensuring that the children I meet when I go to Kenya or Uganda get the same opportunities as children here is the thing that continually motivates me, I think. You know, I, I just, just from what you're saying there, Anna, I just wanted to ask you, because in terms of just, you know, Ireland itself and sort of the, you know, the so-called developed world, that, you know, we, we would often like to think that this isn't a problem anymore, that, you know, we've achieved equality. But what would your take be on that, mm-hmm. given the recent things that have happened? you know, the recent things we're seeing and, of course, things like the pay gap. Yeah, I mean, look, I was talking to somebody last week uh, when we were marking International Women's Day and she said if we continue at the same rate of change, it will take 200 years for the gender pay gap um, to be met in the developed world. 200 years. I mean, that's like, I mean, I can't get my head around that. Mm. So Mm. while I think that we have made tremendous progress we have made absolutely tremendous progress I think there are still major and significant gaps I think we have to address seriously we have to address issues around childcare. we have to address issues around maternity leave 
we have to um, uh, address issues of social perception. You know, Mercy talked about, you know, in Kenya, that thing about what the assumption is about what girls can do. And actually, I do still think that that's an issue. I think it's an issue on the sporting field. I think it's an issue in the in the working field. And yet I think that when we look at last year, this awful year um, in some ways that we've all had, uh, when you look at all those women on the front line, um, you know, in hospitals and in the caring settings and, you know, they weren't afraid, they didn't run away. You know, hospitals did not shut down because girls got scared. Girls got dressed up in their PPE. And actually in the early days, Many, many of my former colleagues in nursing went in without even sufficient PPE because they put the rights and the health of others ahead of themselves. I think Mm. that we have to assess strength differently. You know, we have to look at um, capacity and strength and the willingness to engage differently. So, look, I I think that, um, you know, there are still not enough women in in decision making positions. I look at our government and I think, oh, my God, even at the beginning of the pandemic, every time I turned on the television, there was a lot of men telling us what to do. Some of them really good men, really good men, I think, in the early days. But when you think about it, at the in the first month of, of, of March, this time last year, we were looking at Dr. Tony and, you know, Prime Minister Leo and Minister for Health, Simon, and Minister for Foreign mm. Affairs, Simon. And you just think, is there no one? Like, where are all the girls? And a bit like Mercy said, they were in the hospitals, mm-hmm. um, you know, cleaning out the wards yeah. and caring for some of the most sick and the most vulnerable in that acute phase. They are... The mammies who are at home with vulnerable children or vulnerable elderly people. So the care chain, there's this line about the care chain, you know, who is responsible for all that? So, you know, while the men were out there making big decisions about how we were going to manage a public health pandemic, um, there were many women. And I know there were women involved, but I think when we look at society, for me, there's not enough women in decision making positions politically and socially. I think we could have more women in senior management and business. Mm. I think in the sector that I work in, in the charitable sector, um, I haven't done a count recently, but still, if I'm at a meeting of CEOs, the women are few and the men are many. About more than 70% of the workforce and charitable organizations are female, but the management is more than 70% male. And yeah. some of that is about choice, okay? Of course, some of that is about choice, that sometimes uh, women will make a choice and say, I don't want to go for that because I want to go home. I want to be at home when my children are doing their homework. But I think that that's a little bit simplistic. And I think we mm-hmm. have to make the choices easier. We might have to look at the timing. Not enough women. There's less than 30% of women on board of directors in Ireland. I mean, in this day and age, I think that's not good enough. And sometimes uh, I think, for example, it might be the time of the meeting. I mean, I don't know a mother in Ireland that can go to a meeting 
for example, between, you know, 5.30 and 7.30 p.m. in the evening because they're feeding their children and they're trying to put them to bed. But if the board meeting was at 8 p.m. when the children are gone to bed or if the board meeting was at, I don't know, 7 a.m. before they went to school, that might be a possibility. So sometimes things are still uh, structured in a way Mm. that does not facilitate the full participation of women. And I think all of us, it's a challenge to all of us to try and push those boundaries. It's not always about money. It's it's also Mm. about being at the table. Uh, So look, coming from a family where I have one brother, I have three sisters, you know, we uh, learned, um, you know, early on, we found our voice, uh, I think. Um, and and I think it's a challenge for those of us women who find ourselves in positions of authority and leadership is to bring others with us. And I think that's the other major challenge. I'm going to say, I mean, I'll let you go back to Mercy, but I think, you know, again, even yeah. when we look at sports and I myself, I'm a victim of this. So I know I'm talking to BlackRock community, but I'm a really, really big GAA fan. I'm a member of Kim, or was a member of Chemical Krugs. But I too would tend to look at more men playing sport than women. And mm-hmm. I think, it's on TV you know, far more than men, yeah. you know. And it's on TV far more. And that this last year, again, there was meant to be this big campaign about if you can't see it, she won't do it. I think it's true in sport. And I think it's true in lots of other areas of life. And we all have a responsibility to keep that lens. Like if you guys walk into a room, I know you're in an all boys school, but if you walk into lots of places at some level to keep in your minds, like where are the women? You know, if you, you know, if you're at a, if you're at a meeting or if you're looking at your podcast, have you interviewed 50% men and women or is it 80% men and 20% women? And where are the women? Mm. Are they us nice ladies from the charitable sector? Um, because this seems like the right thing to do. Mm. Have you sought out women entrepreneurs, women uh, artists, um, you know, women business leaders, women politicians? And have you said to yourselves, and maybe you have, have you said to yourself at the start of this process, actually, in a very subtle way, we can change the tone here. Because we've made a decision to ensure that we have included 50% men and 50% women. And it's hard. It's a choice. But it's a choice, I think, that we need to aspire to. Well, Gavin, if you want to ask them about how they met. (laughs) Yeah. um... Because you, you said in your email that we should ask you that. So we thought, you know, that must be a good story if you're mentioning it. Yeah. Guys, in my search for what would work best for girls, to empower girls, one of the challenges we have is <clears throat> girls are not in school. When they are, of course, a baby, they go to school when they are late because nobody will take a girl when she's very young. One, because of the distances to school. The other thing is that uh, once they also go to school, a challenge comes when they start having their menstruation. Because 
the facilities in schools are not there. The, there are no mm. good facilities like washrooms where they can change the pads. Neither do they have the pads because the parents will be either they don't understand why they are buying pads for the girl, or they don't have the resources. And particularly in my organization where we work, the areas where we work, girls, parents don't have the means, the girls also don't have the means and the what they use, they cannot be able to have the pad, the normal pads. What they use, it's what mm. they can use at home or remain at home because they can't be able to go to school. So in my search to make sure that all girls benefit from some education, like I did at God empowerment and also the additional value that I added to communities and the areas where I work, I decided to run a campaign to demystify menstruation. That always people look at it like if they're menstruating, they say you are hit by red devil, you are exhibiting your extra chromosome. They give the girls very negative connotations if they have their menstruation. And so we thought as Gacha Network, we will champion a campaign where we can demystify and just let the men and women out there know menstruation is just a normal process that a girl or a female goes through and should be celebrated. And the boy should be supporting the girls as they go through this process so that they can also benefit from education to be able to change yeah. themselves and also change their communities and change even the, 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 the country that they are living in by taking up decision-making positions because only education can give you such. And... Uh, when we were running the sanitary towels campaign, it was becoming very difficult because people were not willing to donate the the sanitary pads, and we could not go to school and from the ministry to ministry talking about the issue of demystifying sanitary towels. And we had to come up with a budget and we had all our things in place, but even after we launched the campaign, the publicity was not very high because everybody was saying, can you show us that if you give girls sanitary tiles or if you provide sanitary tiles and underwears to girls, they are able to stay in school and benefit in terms of performance, retention, and transition to the next classes. And we were desperately looking for anybody who can support us. And I met this girl. She was a young then, very young girl, called Anne from Edling, Anne Cleary. And in a hotel room, I was referred her by, to her by a lady called Rina Handrahan, who was working with the APSO. The APSO. Yeah. Uh, Anne knows the definition. And she will talk about it. Absolutely. But you know, for me, somebody working from out there in an NGO is big and that's big money. You know, you don't expect to be small. Even if you are told small, you think it's in the context of Kenya, but there. So I waited for her. The first day I went to meet her, she was not out to be this black woman once from me. But I never gave up. The next day, I was there very early in the morning when she was having her breakfast. Day two, she invited me for breakfast so I could tell there are good signs. So we had breakfast and I just told her this big idea that I have of giving girls in Kenya over two million girls sanitary towels so that they can benefit from education, just an education. Yeah. And because she understood from her, the work she was doing in Uganda, and the, I think she was she was doing some work in Uganda then, she would understand. She had already understood, inclu- plus also the passion she had to transform communities. And having been in Africa, she knew the suffering of African girls and women. And she was like, oh, that is not possible. I ran a small charity in Ireland, but we can try something. I'm not promising, but put me something. Put a small 
concept on paper and I can look at it. I was like, oh God, thank God, good riddance, it's going to happen. And literally, she responded after she went back, said she has talked to some women, but even what surprised me and my team, she said, even mm. in Ireland, it is taboo to talk about menstruation. And I was, we were all surprised because we thought there in the West, you put everything on the table, you discuss everything, and that your girls are aware of these things and they can talk about them, carry them to school because they are not scarce. They are there. So we were shocked for her to tell us it's also a taboo, not as much taboo as in mm-hmm. Africa, but at least it's not also a, a subject that is discussed in the open. So she decided, yeah. she decided she will support us. Good enough. And for the first time, we got government of the government, your government through her supporting the sanitary tiles, provision of sanitary tiles and underwears to girls. So we were able to do test cases and we gave sanitary tiles and underwear with our support. 585,000 girls benefited from our sanitary tiles from Edling. And when we got the sanitary tiles, we monitored the girls who are using sanitary tiles. We monitored them. We monitored them. And at the end of the year, they had performed far better. Very few had dropped out of school. And tra- transition had mm-hmm. improved. Performance had improved. Attendance had improved with the girls. So dropping out was very, the dropouts were very limited. So we went back to her and we said, and this is the result. Now, can we start a project? Because when the girls are in school, they cannot be able to dispose sanitary tiles because there are no latrines, one, there are no bathrooms for the girls. And we started mm. a project called Kenya Equity. I can't remember the name of the project. But we were providing, it was a school-based project where we are providing sanitary tiles and other areas, but also constructing water tanks, constructing latrines with bathrooms, and also piped water next to to the washroom so that the girls can be able to wipe their clothes when they sport their dresses. It improved all the trans the schools we were working with, there was improved transition. There was improved enrollment. And this is the data we used to run the campaign. Um, you know, my recollection is um is similar but not exactly the same. So maybe it is a, I suppose a reflection on on yeah, we can all have our own version. Um for me, it is that I, I was in um I was in Nairobi, uh, I was visiting uh, partners and, and programs that we were supporting. And in my memory that every morning for a week, I came down the stairs and there was this woman at the bottom of the stairs saying, I need you. I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you about girls. I need to talk to you about women. And if I'm brutally honest, I thought she was um, a little bit nuts. I thought, like, I, you know, I don't know who she is. I don't know where she's come from. And if I'm being really honest, like I haven't even had my first coffee and there's this woman, you know, she's stalking me. And she is right. After a few days, I thought, oh, here, I'll just bring her for breakfast and maybe maybe I'll get rid of her (laughs) in some fashion. And then she told the story and we both, I suppose we talked to each other and we told each other. I mean, Mercy certainly told me about herself and the work that she was doing, but what she wanted to do. And also, I suppose it was her description 
and her analysis of the challenge for girls and for young women. But also, you know, um, this very clear connection between, I suppose, social cultural barriers to education. So maybe communities that didn't believe in it, uh, where girls were being married off young. But then that very specific detail around, you know, if a young girl gets her period, she can't go to school. Mm. And that this could be a game changer. And I suppose in those days, myself as a young woman, um, that that just this very overt conversation, even when I was growing up, look, I, I, I know I'm talking to two teenage boys. When I was a teenager, I would not have discussed in a fit, uh, you know, menstrual cycle. Mm. I grew up in a house with four girls and one brother. You know, we never talked about it out loud. Uh, the girls, we hid our sanitary towels, you know, under the bed or in the bottom drawer. They were never left in a public space. And there was like, we would never offend my father or my brother mm. by having either the discussion um, or, or otherwise. And, and suddenly I found myself having this conversation with Mercy where she was saying, nobody here is prepared to talk about this. This is a really critical issue. Girls are missing four and five days of school every month. And you can just imagine the consequences. And I suppose one of the things that really struck me about myself was I thought, how did I not think about this before? Like, I, I, I was quite disappointed in myself that how had I not thought about this before? And so I suppose the reason I think the story of our meeting is so interesting is maybe is to say, like, you know, it was about Mercy's absolute determination and kind of her fearlessness of just keeping coming back and fighting on behalf of, of those girls. And, um, and you know, for me, it was the start of, of a really important professional relationship, but also the start of a great friendship, I suppose, where, um, you know, we had common, like we, we came from different places. Um, you know, we, you know, there was lots of things about us that were different, but that we came together on this common cause. Um, and I suppose as well, I think it's often, I think there can be a very simplistic perception when people are doing the work that I do is that, uh, you know, I'm a nurse from Dublin that, you know, I've worked in international development for many years now is that, you know, my job is to go and I don't know, heal the sick, teach those who don't know anything um, fix the problems as I see them. And I think that, that you know, part of the story of AidLink and part of the story of the Girl Child Network and part of the story of change has been that it was by coming together that we actually shared in some of this success. I mean, I learned a massive amount from Mercy um, about about Kenya, about Kenyans, about child rights, about about girls' rights, about gender equality, but also about um, effective development. You know that that and and it was together that we could come up with some of the solutions, and that we would both use our voice uh, in in different ways, and sometimes to different audiences. So while Mercy lobbied in Kenya where she lobbied the Kenyan government and authorities where 
she started to speak about sensitive, maybe sometimes embarrassing issues um, with communities, of course, with teachers, with head teachers, but also with the elite and, you know, and the, the you know, the, politi- the politicos in Kenya. Mm. Um, and then I think she gave me confidence to have those conversations here, to come home and say, actually, yes, that sometimes it's, um, you know, we could tell the story of, oh, we'll build a school or we'll sink a well or, um, you know, we fund teachers. And almost as if, I suppose, life was simple and that there were simple solutions or that life was clean and there might be just clean solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually we have to talk about difficult stuff. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and we have to challenge the status quo and we have to challenge the assumptions and sometimes uh, even things that make make us feel a little bit uncomfortable in in our own social and cultural way we have to challenge them as well if we are looking for justice for all so i think i think that you know ha- how we met each other is almost accidental mm-hmm. but it's how we chose and um, that both professional and personal relationship and how we use that. Uh, and, I, and I think that we have used it, you know, for the benefit of others. And, that, and I don't mean that to sound, you know, kind of pompous. I'm just saying that on a, that, that on a solo run, we might, on either of us on a solo run, we might not have been able to achieve what we have achieved. Mm. And I, I, I just think that's a really important point is that working together understanding each other understanding the challenges and coming up with a a solution and sticking with it because change is slow Hmm. can be tedious it can take a long time you need you need real determination you have to pick yourself up when you fall down uh, or when people say no all the time or people say you can't and one of the things that Mercy taught me was, yeah, you, you know, just and and she would often say to me, girl, just girl, you know, come on, girl. We, you know, we we just have to keep going. Um, and uh, and I just think that's an important story. That's part of who we are now, I think. Just leading on from that and just from what you're saying at the end would be, you know, so we, we now know your beginnings as all came about. So we're wondering now what what work have you guys done together? Yes, thank you, thank you. <clears throat> I think it's, and thank you for bringing that aspect. Our meeting might have been coincidental, but what came out of that, those long waiting mornings, it's what has resulted to, today to an elaborate project on empowering girls and women, not only to say yes to education, but also to take, take charge of their own bodies take charge of their own bodies, their own development, and also their own environment where they are. And to understand when you get a no the first time, you don't say it will always be a no. The no is used, or we've taught the girls and the women and the target groups you work with, that the no you get should always inspire you to ask for more, fight for more when it comes to fighting, not physical fighting, but demanding and always ensuring you are using a rights-based approach. 
So that what you look at now is what started many years ago. With us coming together with Edlink, we were able to look at the, the school environment for the girls, analyze also the school environment for the boys and the whole school environment and ask ourselves, what is lacking that makes the girls not come to school? We are providing sanitary tiles, you've given the girls underwears, but then we also discovered there are also lots of challenges for the girls. One of the biggest challenges was there are no bathrooms in the school, so that when we give the girls sanitary towels and even the underwears, where do they change? Mm. There are no bathrooms, so they have no place to go. There is no privacy. Most of the schools and a one bathroom or a lot a toilet being used by the boys and the girls queuing at break time. If they are queuing to go to the washroom, how will the girls queue and get an opportunity to take longer to change and dispose the used pad and then also get to another one? That was the first challenge that we thought of with Edlink or now we are going to solve the issue of girls' privacy in school. Number two, we realized schools didn't have water so that when girls needed to change or they spotted their dresses, they had nothing to do. Because then when you spot your dress, you need a private place and also water where you can be able to clean up your dress. And then you go back to school when you are like any other girl. What we realized in the school, I don't know whether it happens in Ireland, when girls spotted their dresses, then they would take the cardigan and tie it at the back so that nobody sees the spot. But then boys and other girls would be suspecting what is, what is happening, why the girl is having the cardigan tied to the waist. And this would cause the girl, because of embarrassment, to go away from school and stay for three to four or five days until her menses are over. And what we decided with Anne is to just put together a proposal that we could construct latrines for the girls, that is bathrooms for the girls, all for the girls, but also they can share with the others. But then ours, we call them girl-friendly latrines, where we would have a separate room with a, a, a place to dispose the sanitary pad. And then we also piped the water to next the school, next to the latrine block, where the girls would get the water if they spot their dress, just to go in the private cubicle, clean their, their dresses, and then change and they'll be able to go back to school. Also the girls and the boys, after putting water tanks in the school and brought in the water, some the schools, we installed lictins where the, the girls and the other students would wash their hands, but also made sure we pipe the water next to the latrines and all this courtesy of Edlink. And we were able to have more girls enroll in school, retain in school, perform better and translate to higher classes of learning. I don't have the statistics, but for the years that we've been working since the, from 2010 up to today and onwards, we have many girls registering for KCP, Kenya Certificate of Primary Education. Mm. When we started with Edlink, there were girls who'd only go up to grade five, six, there would be no girls going to grade seven and eight to do the national exams because they all would have, retention was very poor. 
they all dropped out of school. But if we look at the scope of the places you are working, the scope of work, we have now more girls sitting in the national for the national exams. We have girls managing their menstrual hygiene effectively and efficiently. And we continue to lobby the government so that they can always have the sanitary towels in school. In our project areas, we are still providing girls with clean water, with sanitary towels, also with underwears once in a while. And we have seen a great, great improvement in terms of enrollment, retention, transition of girls from one class to the other and also to higher institutions of learning. Am I right, just Mercy, am I right in saying that you are providing the sanitary supplies as well? Yes, so that, to the, yeah, the, so, the very needed girls, yes. <clears throat> so, fair play, that's, you know, so you're providing those, then you're providing the facilities for well, it. Yeah. I, I think I, I think maybe the way I would just add to this is I think one of the most extraordinary um, successes of this program over the last 15 years or more has been the combination of, of I suppose, two things, how we define them as two things. So, so the hardware, I mean, absolutely putting water in toilets in school has been absolutely critical. Many schools in Kenya, primary schools would be built as a three classroom block and maybe the kindergarten are under a tree and literally they would expect two, 300 children to come to school and there would be no water and no toilets. Mm. So water and toilets were key. Yes, for us, the toilet block, you know, that we built was, we always defined it as the girl's toilet block, partly because if there was an existing latrine or a toilet in the school, the boys would get first dibs. So if there was something there, we'd say to the boys, well, you can keep the one you were using all the time. We're going to make a new one and the new one is for girls. So you're not going to lose out. You get to keep yours and there'll be a new one for girls. So yeah, the, so we call them the hardware, you know, the, to the toilet block, the water. I think what was massively critical, massively critical in this program was what we call the software. We trained head teachers and the teaching staff on child rights, all child rights, girls and boys child rights. Mm -hmm. We trained boards of management in how to run a good school, a school that is responsive and sensitive okay. to the needs of the children. And I think that some of the really special things that we've done is that we reached outside of the school environment itself and into the community. And, you know, some of the language is quite simple, but we worked with key leaders in the community and um, sometimes people that we call positive social deviants. Mm -hmm. So people who were leaders in the community that they would work with us uh, and support the idea of sending children to school, all children to school. But again, noticing that if a family was going to make a choice, their primary choice would be we'll send the boys first and then possibly we'll send the girls. And so we worked with those those leaders in the community. And one of the recent additions for us has been we call them community conversations. And I have to say, when I'm visiting the communities in Kenya, in you know the Maasai and Kajado and the Turkana, you know, the highlights of my visit can be to participate in community conversations. And that's where maybe 100 people from a village will come together and talk about the things that interest them. And it could be lots of things. It could be access to water in the community. It could be conflict on some issue. It could be 
talk about the elections. And then we say, but now we want to talk about education. Now we want to talk about what's going on with the children. Now we want to talk. And sometimes it's a, it's an, I mean, it's a formal meeting, but it's a, it's an informal space where people are allowed to express. So older people can come and say, well, I got married, you know, when I was very young and I married a good man and, you know, what good is education going to be for me? And then maybe you'd have a younger person who had been to school who will answer them back or, you know, they they might ask me questions about where have I come from and what am I doing and, you know, why do I care about their children going to school? But part of this is that the buildings themselves on their own are simply buildings. I've often said to people that, you know, a school is a building. Even your school is simply a building. You know, a school is about teachers and learners. If you all moved out, somebody could make that place, you know, Blackrock College, a hotel, you know, or a a set of apartment blocks. I mean, of course, I'm being a bit facetious, but you know what I mean? What makes it a school is that there are students and teachers and and all of the surrounding support network that creates this environment for teaching and learning. Mm. And so for us, yes, we've done some of the physical work in the schools and then this soft work on the outside. And you asked specifically about the sanitary tiles. I think that, you know, Mercy and I have kind of joked about this in the past. Alongside doing the work, and supplying, you know, sanitary towels and and underwear for girls along that journey. We've also lobbied government. And one of the great successes of this programme is the Kenyan government has recognised, you know, like the Scottish government and the New Zealand government, that actually free sanitary, um, you know, um, uh, packs, you know, for girls are really critical in poor communities. Mm. So actually now, Mercy will tell you the date, I can't remember, So it is now part of the free school system. I think one of the massive challenges for the Kenyan authorities is they can't necessarily afford Mm. all the sanitary tiles. But as some of your colleagues prepare for exams, you might be amused to know that one of the things that we do uh, even now is that when the Ministry of Education does have sanitary tiles, we help them distribute the sanitary tiles at exam times and, and also sometimes the Ministry of Education in Kenya doesn't have enough vehicles to get all the exam papers yeah. to schools. And so one of the things we do is we help bring the exam papers and the sanitary towels to schools at exam times. So sometimes the kids see the car coming and they can be half in dread because they know the exam papers are in there and half in delight because they also know that the sanitary towels are also in the back of the pickup. Yeah. So I think it's just about that for us, um, you know, we we have been now in, I think we must be heading for 350 schools, Mercy, since we started. I, I don't know. I have to do my sums. Um, yes. Certainly more than, we are more than half. 400 schools. Yeah, okay, almost 400 schools. And we're certainly heading for, you know, over half a million children. I think, you know, yes. that for us, you know, when Mercy, so we have seen massive increase in enrollment, you know, 30, 40 percent in some places, higher in some and not in others, of both boys and girls. Because, again, even though we champion 
the girls because they're the ones who've been left behind. When the school is better, when the teachers are more equipped, when the board of management starts to engage in education, more come. And that for us is critical. And just, you know, I'm conscious of time here just to say, you know, we do. Uh, the other thing that happens in school is we have these rights of the child clubs mm. and we used to call them shout out clubs. And I liked that name better, Mercy. But anyway, they are now the rights of the child clubs, always both boys and girls and boys and girls learning about their rights, their right to education, their right to healthcare, their right to play. And um, sometimes they're very funny about their right to play. Um, and but they learn about their rights also learn about each other in a new and different way. And I think one of the great successes we've seen is meeting teenage boys who will say things like, well, I want to marry an educated girl. And although, you know, at some times, you know, at 12 or 13 or 14, it might, it might sound a little bit funny, but what it means is they're starting to say that when they look to their future, they don't necessarily want an arranged marriage. They don't necessarily want to be told who to marry and also that they don't want to take advantage of a young and innocent girl who has no choice and agency about her life. So we know that the journey for girls um, and, you know, has to include good men. And I, I do think it's very important to say this, that, you know, Mercy and I have worked with really good men all through our journey fantastic head teachers, fantastic teachers. The deputy director of the Girl Child Network is a man uh, and he's a really, really good man who has spent his adult life championing the rights of children and particularly girls. Um, I've worked in, in Ireland, we've had great men work with us in Aidling who have absolutely taken on the mantle. So it's not about, you know, who do we love more? Mercy is the mother of four boys. You know, it's not about, you know, this one or the other. But we think that the world is fairer and more just when both boys and girls get a fair opportunity. We think they will look after each other better, their families better, their country better, the environment better when they're taking that, um, when, they're, when they're both sides are having that opportunity. And we have seen I mean we one of the lovely things is you know every year I mean I go to Kenya a few times a year but you know we try to meet some young people that that we've met but like sometimes now we're meeting you know 30 year olds who are saying mm. both men and women you know well I was in a shout out club which means they were in a rights of the child club in in the original name and I have finished secondary school and I've gone on to university so um so Success is colourful. It's not simply one thing. Um, I think that even, look, I would say that even in the Irish education system, that success is not simply one thing. For somebody, success might be 600 points. Mm. For somebody, success might be, you know, 400 points and taking the lead role in the musical. Or certainly in the community that I'm speaking to, success might be, I can read and write, but I was the captain of the senior cup team. Do you get me? That success exactly, is a yeah. it's, not, yeah. it's not one thing. Okay, so, so, so the same is true in Kenya. Success is 
And, and the same is true for Kenyan children. Success is not one thing. What we are trying to ensure is that every child gets an opportunity, that their right to education is fulfilled, and that we know that for some children, that right is compromised by their gender. And so we just want to make sure that both get a fair whack. And I, again, I don't know how you're going to edit this, but, you know, just to say that even after COVID, you know, we've been really concerned over the last 12 months about girls returning to school, Mm. but a growing concern about boys returning to school. And one of the reasons is that we've seen many young boys, primary school I'm talking about now, who have got jobs either collecting sand for construction or petty trading. But now they've had a taste of a little bit of money in their pockets, but also, um, you know, money for the family. And now there's a concern, oh gosh, are they now not going to come back? Because, you know, children were locked out of school for a whole year. No online learning, no alternative opportunities, no access to that safety net of school, to that educational opportunity. And that, you know, the, the, the poverty that ensued for families, like children getting fed in school and then suddenly there's no school, so there's no food. And then the children arrive at work. Will they be able to return? So there are many challenges ahead for boys and girls. We will continue to champion the rights of girls. We have made progress but there is a long way to go. Uh, and, and that's part of our challenge, I think, to, to, to keep at it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being with us today.